Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Reading, narrative, and the self. What do we want to talk about when we talk about selves? Surely there's got to be some artistry in this story. Each of us writes at least one novel, the story of our own lives. The telling of our stories allows us to tell a story of our future, which allows us to plan, but it also allows us to enjoy our lives, to be aesthetic appreciators. Does a life need a narrative? Or is life just one damn thing after another? There's an additional value conferred upon a life by its having a certain kind of shape. Our guest is Joshua Landy, co-director of the Literature and Philosophy Initiative at Stanford University. The story of a life that builds from stupid things that you did to slightly less stupid things is a more satisfying story. Reading, narrative, and the self. Recorded in front of a live audience of Friends of the San Francisco Public Library. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today we're in front of a live audience at the Congregation Beth Shalom in San Francisco, recording the program with the Friends of the San Francisco Public Library. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today, reading, narrative, and the self. Well, Ken, that's a mouthful. I mean, reading is something most people do. A good narrative or story, to use a less fancy term, is something most people enjoy. And a self is something everyone has. But when you put them all together, reading, narrative, and the self, what, what are we getting at? Well, let's take them in reverse order. Let's, let's start with the self. I mean, you're right. Everybody has a self. Or maybe it's better to say everybody is a self. But here's a question. What exactly is a self anyway? Well, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Psychologists think of the self in terms of the attributes of a person, the most important attributes of a person to the person, the, the attributes a person has that that person most strongly identifies with. So, so for you, uh, being from Ohio, you're, part of yourself is being an Ohioan. For me, being uh, an esthete and, a, and an intellectual <laughs> well, there is, you is part of myself. Well, that, that's how <laughs> psychologists tend to think of this. So philosophers, on the other hand, don't think of those that particular bundle of attributes as the self, but the more the underlying agent or thinker who possesses the kind of attributes that define the self in this psychological sense. So good point. Two conceptions of the self. Which, which one are we concerned with today? Well, both, really. Oh, tell me more. Well, the thing about human beings is that the self, in the psychologist sense, is not just given to us in advance as something fixed and determinate. That self has to be uh, constructed, and it's constructed out of materials that our society or our culture that they, that they make available. Hmm. Well, but, but I mean, the self is... I'm not a social construct. Myself is a social construct. It could exist without society or culture. Well, I wasn't really talking... Uh, I was talking about self in the psychologist sense. I, I agree with you that the self in the philosopher's sense, the thing that underlies the psychologist self, that, 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 that definitely isn't, I don't think that's a social construction at all. In fact, I think the self in the philosopher's sense is the thing that does the constructing of the self in the psychologist sense. It's not the thing that gets constructed, it's the constructor. So like Merle Kessler's the self in the philosopher's sense 
And Ian Scholes is a self in the psychologist sense because Merle constructed well, Ian that's, Scholes. That's, that's kind of right. Yeah, getting yeah. closer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm here constructing myself. Right? Yeah, it sounds, yeah. sounds vaguely sinful. <laughs> 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 I see where we're going with this. I, I even see how it ties into the topic of narrative. Well, well how so? Well, narrative helps us to make sense of ourselves. If we're going to construct a self, we, we need a storyline. One way we understand ourselves is by narrating ourselves, telling ourselves stories in which we figure as prominent characters. Think of a son who inherits the family business. This doesn't see himself as a, you know, a kind of a single little individual. He sees himself as a great drama and trying to make sense of his life, his choices, his situation. He sees his life as an episode in a, in, in a drama that stretches back over multiple generations. Well, I think that's right. But you know, the stories that we tell ourselves, they're not just about relating the present to the past. They're also, they also look to the future. They, they help us shape our choices and decisions because we try to make our narratives true by trying to become what we've told ourselves that we are. Sounds kind of dangerous, like we're gonna end up being prisoners of the stories we told ourselves a while back or even worse, ones we inherited from our family or our culture. I, I, don't, mean, I, don't, I don't mean to suggest that. I mean, because we, 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 do, we do have the freedom to reject the narratives that our society or culture or families offer up. But you know, we can't make sense of ourselves or even, I don't think we can even plan for the future without some background narrative in place. I mean, we don't really have a choice about that. That's just part of the human predicament. So now I'm, I, I kind of see where the third thing on our list, reading, is gonna fit in. Great works of literature are rich storehouses of narrative possibilities. In real life, we only get one time through. We get one chance to narratively construct a self. But the great works of literature can expose us to thousands of experiments in narrative self-construction. Well, that's exactly right. So who better to help us with this grand trio of topics, reading, narrative, and the self, Ex who better than someone steeped in the theory of literary narratives? And luckily, although he was lost for some time, we did finally track down Josh Landy, Joshua Landy from Stanford University in a dusty corner of the Stanford Library covered with books and mumbling to himself. Uh, he'll join us in a little bit. <laughs> and we want our audience who, as friends of the San Francisco Public Library, are undoubtedly avid readers, and no doubt they're also highly practiced at self-narration. We want their help, too. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Angela Kilduff, takes a closer look at the role of the library in our self-narration. She files this report. We go to libraries for different reasons, but fiction can really capture the imagination. To find out which fictional characters people really love, I visited the San Francisco Public Library. Just pick one of my favorites. Gandalf the Wizard from uh, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Perhaps one of my favorite characters is Andrei Bolkonsky. He's a protagonist from Tolstoy's novel, The War and Peace. He just represents a very balanced, very healthy individual. My favorite fictional character is Tom Sawyer because he was so innovative and uh, he was such a, an adventurer. One of my favorite characters is Don Quixote from Miguel de Cervantes and it's because uh, Don Quixote was a dreamer and in many ways I read books that take me away and as an escape, as therapy. The last voice we heard was Luis Herrera, San Francisco's city librarian. He's responsible for overseeing the city's main library and 27 branches. Another one that's similar to uh, the concept of dreaming is the Secret Garden. 
Uh, the character there, little Mary Lennox, um, uses Secret Garden as an escape. I love those kind of characters that transport you to other places. The flip side of that is I also like books that are didactic, that teach you about character, the good and the bad. Herrera loves books, but says libraries are much more than collections of bound volumes. I see libraries as kind of the, the most democratic institution where you really are looking at sharing information and providing information. So books are part of that, but it's broader than that. As far as I'm concerned, the role of libraries is really about having a very aware and well-informed society. As city librarian, it's his job to meet the needs of an incredibly diverse community. We have uh, materials in over 65 languages to reflect a very, very different, diverse uh, user group. Also, whether it's the Chinese community, the Spanish-speaking community, Russian community, Vietnamese, I can go on and on. And to me, that's very much part of a cultural narrative that we're sort of weaving for the city because people want to be reflected and represented within a city's cultural story. Technology has extended the library's reach, but Herrera says it hasn't made the library any less relevant. If anything, the libraries are now more critical. We have a digital divide, and the public library is a great equalizer because it definitely provides access to those that do not have it. We started a laptop lending program about a year ago, and it's actually one of our more popular checkout materials. You, know, you check out a laptop to use in your neighborhood library, just like you would check out a book, and that's the number one circulating item. Laptops are important tools, but the city librarian insists the printed page isn't going away anytime soon. You know, we still had almost 12 million items borrowed this last year, and the majority of those are still books. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Angela Kilduff. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.